Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 81, Commedia dell'arte, Characters and Masks. Last time, I plotted the uncertain origins of the Commedia dell'arte, theatre for the common man that maybe had its origins in Roman comedy, or the religious cycle plays, or folkloric traditions, or maybe a bit of all of that. Things got a little more certain when we moved to the mid-1500s and something recognisable to us as the Commedia dell'arte emerges and became recognised as something particular by its contemporaries. Thomas Croyat, the English traveller who left descriptions of the close relationships between the charlatans and the Montebanks and the performers of the comic plays, was, if not shocked, then surprised by what he found in Renaissance period Venice. The emphasis of Commedia dell'arte was professionalism, comedy, entertainment and not a little satire. This was theatre for the people because it was not about impressing your peers with your erudite knowledge of Latin, Roman or even Greek plays or displaying the beauty of the poetry that you could create. Those elements had their place in the courts and universities and salons but not on the street and, in time, at some of the theatres. This was about entertainment enjoying the spectacle and the music, and let's not forget the poking fun at the local dignitaries and other rulers that the common people might be aware of. A joke at the expense of a prince or even a pope might get slipped in next to a jibe about the fat man in the front row, or the local magistrate who slipped in at the back hoping not to be seen but wanting to enjoy the show, or the drunk woman who thought she could get the better of the performers with her own wit. This was spontaneous theatre, or so it appeared. But behind the apparently improvised scenes were prompt books and written jokes and scenarios that had been pre-selected by the performers. And that takes nothing away from the elements that were improvised and delivered extempore by the skill of the performers. But improvisation was only one element of the skills on display. As the troops, who were still mostly nomadic and circled the country following the fairs and feast days, developed their art, a number of standard characters were developed. Eventually, and a specific time frame is uncertain here, all the troops were presenting more or less the same characters showing the same traits in various scenarios. Now, that suggests that there was a lot of cross-fertilisation between the troops, and many were well aware of what the others were doing, so that, collectively, they coalesced the characters into common types. That seemed quite likely, especially amongst the most successful troops that we have records of. Surely they would have seen each other's work, brought in ideas as occasionally actors moved from one troop to another, and found the common point of entertainment that the crowd responded to. They were performing to a still largely illiterate crowd, so characters that carried familiarity and common traits were useful as a shorthand to engaging an audience. But before getting to the individual characters, we need to appreciate that there was a pretty strict hierarchy within the character set that also reflected the hierarchy in the acting troupe, which in turn held to the almost universal belief in society in general that the order of society was ordained by God and there was purpose to each individual's position in society they were born into. This is the period where the strictest of these ideas was beginning to break down with the rise of the newly rich merchant classes who could hope for some social advancement and the impact of the Reformation, which had the potential to take a man to who knows where. But it remained useful for the aristocracy and the church to squash any ideas of social mobility that might be stirring in the populace in general. However, 
In the Commedia dell'arte troupe, the hierarchy was used to mock the current social norms. The leader and senior actors, which I use here to mean actress as well, played the most major parts, like Pantalone and Il Dottore. Below them, younger, less experienced actors played other featured parts, like the young lovers and the captain. And below them came the minor characters, who sometimes doubled as musicians. Collectively, this group was known as the Zani. And you can no doubt hear in the word there that it's the origin for our word zany, for a particularly madcap extreme kind of comedy. That in turn tells us something about the comedy of the plays. These were not gentle, giggle quietly to yourself comedies. No, they were meant to generate a big laugh. You came to the Commedia to have a good time and see something that was not just entertaining, but a little life-affirming as well. It could be rude and bawdy at times and was not afraid to poke a joke at those who thought too much of themselves. But you also knew that you were getting a nice story that would end happily and then there would always be singing and dancing and costumes and music to enjoy. Much of that enjoyment and much of what we remember about Commedia dell'arte comes from the characters portrayed on stage. So what are the details of these stock characters who have become so influential? There were five main characters who were supported by some female characters and the Zani group of characters. The main characters changed a little and were renamed sometimes as the form developed, but there is a lot of commonality between them over time and distance to a surprising degree. The summary of each character that follows could have quite a bit more detail in each case, but I've opted to give you a broader idea of them rather than the where and the how and the when of all of the changes that have been documented, just to keep things to a reasonable length. In almost every company there was a middle-aged character, or more elderly character, called Pantaleone, or Pantalon, or Pantalone, or Pantaloon. The origins of the name are uncertain, but it could be derived from Saint Pantaleone, a popular saint in Venice at the time, or perhaps more likely from the name of the Venetian merchants who were known as Piantaleoni. Another suggestion is that the name refers to the character's endless search for money. His full name used in some troops means of the needy. The whole question is further complicated because in the earliest versions of the scenarios he is called Magnifico and was portrayed as an aristocrat or city elder, but this soon gave way to the very similar Pantalone character. Exactly how the names became associated with particular characters is as murky as the development of the form itself, but in this case there is an interesting nuance from 1565 when an actor apparently called Pantalone is mentioned in the court papers in Rome. That presumably means he was an actor who played this role as his speciality and had become synonymous with it, and not that the actor had created the role, but perhaps it shows how recognised actors became with their roles within Commedia dell'arte. Whatever the case, the early recorded reference to Pantalone and his primary position in the character world of Commedia dell'arte suggests that his roots go way back beyond the records we have. Some have seen in him the same character as the Carnival King who dies with the passing of the old year, suggesting that Pantalone's origins are primarily in the folklore traditions. His costume was a tight red shirt under a black coat or cassock, below which he wore red breeches or stockings, and the ensemble was finished off with soft Turkish slippers. 
As Pantalone, he was portrayed as a merchant and usually played with a Venetian accent, as they were, of course, the greatest traders of their day as far as the Italians were concerned, and therefore they are always concerned for money and full of their own self-importance. Many of the characters wore a full or partial mask, and those two were standardised by character. Pantalone's was brown and sported a large curved nose. The visual implication was that he was a predator on the make. His older age is indicated by a grey beard and tufts of untidy white hair that protruded from under the soft cap he wore. In the plays, he was grasping and greedy. His concern was always to keep his purse full, opening it only when he could see a good reason for doing so. His sharp eye for a good deal was only distracted when a curvaceous young lady came into view, in fact, when anyone of the opposite sex appears. He's not fussy at all, and every woman is subject to his leering jokes and comments. He speaks in the voice of an old man, showering proverbs onto the younger characters, which he thinks passes for knowledge, but they often fall well clear of that mark and single him out as a fool. It's only his own massive ego that prevents him from seeing how foolish he looks. He wears a gold chain and a dagger to signify his wealth, and of course a bulging money pouch, which was usually worn provocatively dangling in front of his genitals. In some troops, that was changed to be a money-carrying codpiece, but the phallic implications were always there. The physical stance of characters on stage was also an important part of their character, and the audience recognition of that character. In the case of Pantalone, it was the stoop of the old man, but that was also a means of protecting his money and those other precious jewels. To further exaggerate the focus on the crotch, the feet were held close together and the knees bent facing out. This is the classic pantalone, but in illustrations from some of the earlier portrayals, the focus was on his bullying and aggressive manner, and the pose is more upright and stronger, the phallus emphasised to the point of erection, and he can look, well, youthful. But somewhere, and we think somewhere fairly early in the development, this interpretation was lost, and the pantaloni that stuck evolved into the older, less threatening version. On stage, pantalone is often paired with Il Dottore, the doctor. He wore a black cloak and hat with a white ruff, suggesting that he's an academic and proud of his qualifications. His mask was very dark brown or black, but with bright red cheeks painted on it. He wore a short, neat-trimmed beard. He is a pedant in speech that is often little more than a series of what he considers to be infallible pronouncements. He peppers his speech with Latin phrases, but delivers all of this with an accent from Bologna. To the audience, this was immediately incongruous, revealing that he comes from peasant origins, and so perhaps is not as learned as he seems. Sure enough, the scenarios soon find him to be a gullible fool, easily taken in by tricksters, and worse still, he is cuckolded by his faithless wife. As I mentioned last time, the quack doctor character had a long history, but also a current association with the Montebanks and Charlatans who shared the stage with the Commedia dell'arte. These origins certainly go back into local folklore and possibly earlier. It's tempting to think that the quack doctor character has existed since the time of Hippocrates, perhaps even earlier. The plays almost always include a section where this false doctor can boast of his cures, his travels and his acquired knowledge. 
That is closely followed by a haggle over his fee, which is always on the extortionate side, as he tries to claim that the miraculous recovery of the hero is down to his skills, even when clearly it is not. The Dottore moved around the stage in staccato fashion, with tiny steps, tipping back on his heels as he thinks out loud, of course, he loves to show his working, to display his knowledge, and he stretches tall as he decides on a course of action. Because the impact of the Doctor on the plot is not usually significant, but often contained in a single part of the play, he is sometimes viewed as secondary to the major characters, but that view really underrates him. This character reaches far back into folklore, but is also very recognisably current. When he's on stage, he assumes control of it. That is because he offers hope in what appears to be a hopeless situation, but he is also feared because of the esoteric nature of his knowledge that verges on the magical. But for all of this deeply felt resonance with the audience, he is also a comic figure, providing a lot of the comedy in the piece as he comments on the action of the other characters. He strikes a pose behind other characters while they speak, undermining or distracting from their words. He tuts and sighs to indicate his disagreement with whoever is speaking, but then offers a ridiculous solution or no solution at all. This character is a great example of how there was much that Commedia dell'arte inherited from the past and did not feel the need to change comedy when they knew it worked. They simply absorbed the character into their own world. Where he appears in the medieval cycle plays and the English mummers plays, the Doctor is a very similar character. This is deeply traditional stuff, but in Commedia dell'arte, the combination of the traditional and the contemporary was at its most obvious, and that, I think, speaks to why it is such a successful and long-lasting form. The next character is that of the army character, and it's one that has made its way most obviously from Roman comedy. He's often referred to just as Il Capitano, but his traditional full name was Il Capitano Salvador de los Virgines Baracas, which translates to the Captain Saviour of the Drunken Virgins. Yes, nothing too subtle there. The braggart soldier character of Roman theatre became a cowardly Italian in the early Commedia dell'arte scenarios, but then developed a Spanish look and character, with his honorific Capitan emphasised to show his origins. Through the early 1500s, Italy had been subject to military incursions from both France and Spain, a matter that was more or less settled in 1530 when Charles V of Spain was crowned King of Italy. Through much of the Renaissance period, there was a Spanish military presence in the Italian states, either through occupation or agreements with individual dukes and princes to accept a form of Spanish overlordship. So, much of the local population knew the Spanish military, even if their locality hadn't been directly in the path of any of the many skirmishes that took place between the armies of Charles V and local resistance. As things settled down, these armies were superseded by military men roaming the countryside looking for mercenary work as military advisers to the local dukes and princes, and they had a reputation for over-emphasising their achievements on the battlefield. But through all of that, The characteristics of the Roman version that will be seen again in Shakespeare's Falstaff and others in the future are present here. The captain is a fake and a fraud, and sometimes even the validity of his rank is questioned, the suggestion being that he did once hold the rank, but it had been stripped from him thanks to some inappropriate behaviour. He blusters around the stage in a parody of the military march, 
pompously speaking of his acts of bravery and the brilliance of his command. But it's all for show, for he is a coward at heart. Typically, he was short of cash and trying to live off his wits until the next army payday came in. Despite his lack of funds, he's always sure of his attraction to the ladies, and his moment of realisation that his advances have fallen short was often the peak of the comedy in the play. His mask, which carries a fierce expression, also had a long nose, and below he had a generous black moustache. His cap is fluted and feathered, and as he strides around, he emphasises his words with a flourish and a stab of a wooden sword that he carries. This type of character, as a cousin descended from the Roman braggart soldier, also featured in the Latin comedies, often as the unscrupulous love rival and the butt of many jokes, and it's one of the few crossover points between the two forms, thanks to their common ancestor. Perhaps more than any other character, he appears under many different names. Cocodrillo, Matamoros and Rhinocrente were the most common versions, but there are many others, including Mio Sasquara, the rather too descriptive little shit. A tradition developed that when an actor took on the role, which was one that he was likely to play for many years, he had to create a new name for the character, so they inevitably became rather inventive. A principal purpose of the character of the captain was to satire the military, so his costume changed to represent the current or local army. A common feature was a helmet with a huge feather on top or a spike, and long leather boots, although maybe not a matching pair, and flamboyant garters. Beneath the bright surcoat with its sashes and medals was a soldier's leather jerkin, but a tattered and patched one, which, with the mismatched boots, gave a clue to his true financial state. A somewhat more subtle indication of his character was the streak of yellow somewhere in his costume. When the state of his undergarments is questioned, he blusters and puts it down to the way his muscles expand and his body hair bristles as he fights the enemy. For us, it's perhaps easy to see the captain just as a historical figure now, but for his contemporaries, he was probably the character that was most enjoyed for the satire and the ridiculing of something that had been a presence in the country that most would have seen as a bad thing. We also need to remember that the captain was an integral part of the pre-mechanised warfare. The hand-to-hand combat with the sword that the captain led his men through was bloodthirsty stuff, and as the commander on the spot, he was pivotal. As Machiavelli himself pointed out, the whole course of a battle could depend on the leadership of a captain and his skills as a horseman. As he put it, the single unexpected spin of a horse could change the course of a skirmish. There was honour in that, but these Spanish captains were mercenaries, who fought first for one party and then another without any patriotic motivation, and as such they were, if not despised, then looked down on with feeling. An even more varied role came with the Neapolitan Pulcinello, or Punchinella, or Punchinello, and several other versions. He could be both wise and foolish, engaging or boring, and his kindness could turn to something near cruelty, through the different manifestations. What distinguished him most was his ugliness. His mask was peppered with warts and spots, his nose was an enormous hook. He was often portrayed with a humped back and protruding stomach. His legs were thin and bandy. 
He wore a long pointed cap that was adorned with a feather. If you're familiar with the English Punch and Judy show, then think of Mr Punch, who developed from this Commedia dell'arte character, probably via Neapolitan puppetry. Punchinello was never going to be a character liked by the audiences. Indeed, he was created to be disliked. So his worst traits were played up to the full and he was, no doubt, booed around the stage. His origins have been traced back to the Maccus and Bucco characters of Attilan Farce as he combines the characteristics usually associated with them. That heritage is also given as an explanation for why Punchinello is sometimes played as a servant and sometimes as a master. As the master type, he is intelligent and always scheming to control events, whereas in the lower role, he is more of the country bumpkin, who is carried by the events as he tries to turn them to his advantage. In both cases, self-preservation is his touchstone, but he can disguise that because he is clever enough to help those around him too and turn that to his advantage. When we come to the character of Arlecchino, we find something much more sympathetic, but you don't know him under that name. He started life as a minor character as one of the servant characters among the Zani, but proved very popular with the audience and was developed into a major character thanks to that popularity. He's a seductive tease, adventurous and cunning, always finding himself involved in whatever intrigue is going on in the plot. But he has a bit less sense than he should have, and things never seem to quite go to plan. He's physically agile, bouncing around the stage as he plays a prank or leads to the dancing. This is the much-loved character Harlequin. His black half-mask had large eye holes, so that his piercing, mischievous eyes could be seen. He wore a rakish hat and carried a harmless sword known as a slapstick that he would often beat the other players with. His costume started out as a representation of beggar's rags, a shirt and a coat made of mismatched patches of cloth. But by the time Harlequin was developed into the most popular character of the troupe, so much so that he became the symbol of the acting style, the costume had become a multicoloured chequered design of regular diamond shapes. The name, derived from an old French word for devil or demon, suggests that his origins are in the French medieval cycle plays. And we can see that this style of mask that recalls the black-faced devil's assistance, his capering movements and the slapstick all speak to the character's origins as a devil's assistant. At the latest, by the 1560s, the devil element had been toned down and the character was largely present for physical entertainment. The actor playing this part had to be more acrobat than anything else. Every movement would be made complex and agile. Traversing the stage was no simple walk, but would include a cartwheel. Descending from a balcony would mean a backflip or other spectacular somersault. The slapstick was used for beating others, but only after a toss and a catch accompanied by exaggerated gestures. He plays only a small part in advancing the plot, but is crucial to keeping the show lively and the entertainment bubbling along. Harlequin's constant companion was Brigella, or Buffetto, or Scapino. Usually portrayed as a servant, he was a more minor character and an odd sort of companion for the likeable Harlequin. Brigella was shy and cunning, having a sharp eye and a sharper wit. Here we can see something of the Roman cunning slave type being cut to a sharper point. He was another owner of a large hooked nose and wore a short white jacket and wide trousers which were decorated with green brocade. Like Harlequin, he carried a slapstick and he wasn't afraid to use it. 
His half-mask was green to indicate lust or envy. The thick lips and large moustache worked to let everybody know that his intent was essentially evil. In the Scappino version of the character, his desire for sexual content had become the overriding characteristic. These desires robbed him of the ability to think clearly, and he was forever getting into scrapes from which he only narrowly extracted himself. Pedrolino was a character that stood out because he didn't wear a mask. Instead, his face was fully powdered to white, matching his white costume of loose shirt and white wide pantaloons. Like Harlequin, Pedrolino started as a minor character but became popular until he was almost as recognisable a symbol of the Commedia dell'arte as Harlequin was. He made the change from being a minor character in the late 16th century thanks, it's thought, to the efforts of one actor, Giovanni Palassini. It's also possible that the character is the origin of the French Pierrot character, who has longevity thanks to his melancholy outlook and ill luck in matters of love, which has appealed to audiences over the centuries. These characteristics are present in Pedrolino, but the link between the two is uncertain. He is another slave character, but one who helps to instigate movement in the plots by being the go-between or enabler of his master's plans. The roster of female characters was led by Columbine, the wife of Pedrolino and mistress of Harlequin. Her name means Little Dove. Like the other female characters, she probably evolved from the early Commedia where women were only allowed on stage as part of the opening dances. From there it is thought that they progressed, if that's the right word, to playing serving wenches and gossipy background characters, and from there to becoming named characters with their own personas. This is not equality on stage yet, the female characters are counterparts to their male originals, but at least they're there and played by women. Columbine is a gossipy flirt and has a heartless streak and sometimes she fully takes on the role of the cunning servant, but there is strength there too. She can read any situation well and usually sees exactly what is going on in contrast to the supposedly more intelligent men. She's dressed in a short patched dress, indicating her servant status, but like all the female characters, was unmasked. Prominent makeup was used around the eyes, and she carries a tambourine which she often used to fend off the advances of her unfortunate husband. When it came to affection towards Harlequin, her friend in some versions, her lover in others, she was often the instigator, and used multiple disguises to try to seduce him. She only had one function in the plot to assist her mistress, the young lover, in gaining access to the object of her desire. So we're still far away from any ideas of gender equality on stage, and although there are other female characters, like Pasquala, the cunning old woman who wears a full mask with a big nose and pits and cracks to indicate her evil nature, they are little more than female equivalents of the male characters and have little function in the plays. In some troops, these characters even carried female versions of the male names, so we get Harlequina and Piretta, for example. The last characters I should mention specifically are the two young lovers, known collectively as the Innamorati. They were unmasked and represented normality, around which all of the other bizarre characters rotated. Much of the plots are taken up with their attempts to get together, which, despite many setbacks, are always eventually successful. They were played as the children of any combination of the older characters, depending on the particular scenario and the size of the troupe. 
Their costume changed with the fashions of the day, and their speeches were often long segments of quoted love poetry or prose. What was certain is that they would be destined to enjoy a happy ending, whatever traumas the plot threw in their way. So Commedia dell'arte is in many ways very familiar, stuffed full as it is of stock characters who are masters and servants and lovers who are forever trying to outwit each other in one form or another. They are universal archetypes that are an exaggeration of many who we can recognise from Roman and medieval theatre to one degree or another and, without too much extrapolation, could encounter in life even today. And that, I think, is exactly why the form survived and implanted itself into the collective artistic consciousness. These particular versions of the archetypes are right at the beginning of the modern era, where the mindset and sensibilities are close enough to our own for us to feel way more comfortable with them than we would for anything from, say, the Roman or medieval stage. Most of the heavy lifting there is done through the characters, which are comic, chaotic and not a little bizarre. But they have elements of truth and individuality about them that is something new and recognisable to us. In their time, the plays thrived because they used exaggeration and comedy and mask to produce an extravagance of emotion that appealed to the sensibilities of the time. At this time, there was little interest in individuality, in character development or the psychology of actions. What the audience of the day expected was an embodiment of a mood and a type of behaviour that was clearly good or bad. And I'm not suggesting that the audience was any less engaged with the plays or less sophisticated necessarily than us. They just had a different expectation of what the purpose of a play was. In Commedia dell'arte, it was entertainment, much of which was achieved through characters that were satiric and comic, but who also held an emotional truth and values that have universal appeal, and that can still be said to hold true today. Next time, we'll stay with the Commedia dell'arte and take a closer look at the plays they created and the nature of their performances. The scenarios are just that, rather than full scripts, so much of what they did is lost, but we can piece something together from surviving prompt books and traditions that continued well beyond the end of the Renaissance period itself. In the meantime, please consider joining the members on Patreon who receive extra audio content. For the last episode for members, I interrupted the series on the life and works of Konstantin Stanislavski to give an appreciation of the life and work of Peter Brook, who passed away recently. Some of you may remember that I opened episode one of the podcast with a quote from his essays published in 1968 called The Empty Space. If you'd like to hear that and all the other content posted on Patreon, you can get instant access for a small monthly fee. I've put a link in the show notes. Thanks again for your support in whatever form, and I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can always contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) 